hello. Welcome to the Church Podcast, where we investigate one historical figure or event. Um, we look at the Bible, and then we make a, a couple theological statements. So we tie history, historical theology into um, some theological statements or statements that um, we feel through history that uh, can be clarified statements about God. And uh, that's what we have been seeking to do. In fact, from the very beginning, one of the things I wanted to do is is to say, yes, obviously the Bible, the Word of God, is the is the starting place, the most important thing that we have um, as to reference and to follow as far as our Christian walk and and uh, um, and where we need to spend most of our time. And uh, but we need to understand that even beyond the Bible. Um, not more important than the Bible, but beyond the Bible, um, there are rich theological wells that we can uh, drink from. And uh, I think sometimes this is something that's missed in evangelical uh, um, Christianity, um, whatever Christianity type that you would uh, put yourself into, and people who are looking into Christianity. They're not Christians, but they're just interested in what Christianity is about. Um, If you go to a bookstore, uh, Barnes & Noble's, and you say, okay, in fact, fact, you know what, this is is a great example. I was in uh, in a Barnes & Noble's recently, and I... I, I love history, obviously, so I spent time in, they have an area about military history, U.S. history, um, world history, um, geopolitical um, movements throughout history, um, biographies, you know, autobiographies, all these types of things that are, of course, are modern ideas, uh, for example, autobiographies for sure, um, like Barack Obama's new book and, and some of that, and uh, Matthew McConaughey, you know, he has a book out right now that he uh, he wrote. Um, I don't know why we really care about what Matthew McConaughey has to say, but some people do, apparently, you know, but the point is that um, there's all this focus on, on history in, 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 uh, in the bookstores. But when it comes to Christianity, which has such a deep, deep history, especially if you go all the way back to, we talked, we had a podcast last uh, um, year where we looked into ancient Near Eastern um, religions, and you kind of go back and look at that. That was one of our first podcasts where we looked about, I think it's called Gilgamesh and the Flood, where we, we looked at the different flood stories um, back, you know, that, that compared to the story of Noah in Genesis chapter 6. Um, but what we find is that, uh, you know, if you, if you walk back into the Christian section, Christianity, or, you know, um, sometimes it may be spirituality, but Christianity kind of dominates that. There's, there's some... Uh, um, uh, books that have to do with Islam, but as far as it, it's it's a popular thing to just read what uh, pastors, uh, celebrity pastors, uh, large church pastors, um, just general writers and stuff, how they are how as a comment on Scripture directly into what they want to say based on what they see in Scripture, and they tell you. Now, there's not there's nothing wrong necessarily with that, but um, I think what's missing is we need we should be able to have be able to wrap our minds, especially for Christians, around this idea that there is a that there is a history, a rich history that's there that we can um, that we can learn from that helps us actually see the Bible, um, where it was written, the the uh, the time, the culture it was written in. It helps us make sense of what we're reading, and we don't want to just skip from Bible to 
the guy who uh, you know the guy who's writing right now, we need to fill in some of that gap with, or a lot of that gap, or the gap with um, all the other things and that are happening um, throughout that time. And I think that's just so so important. So you know, one of the things that I want to do in, in in a podcast in this podcast is implore you to um, challenge you to encourage you to. Um, dig deep into the history of Christianity and into the history that surrounds Christianity. So this is not just the history of the specific events that are happening in the Bible, but it's the history around what's happening. Okay, so in the story of Jesus, what's happening um, in, in, in politics, what's happening in geopolitics, what's happening in the, the Roman Empire, what's happening around the world, what's happening in China, what's happening in other dynasties all over the world, what's happening? Because the more we understand, um, the more we are able to make sense of what we believe. Um, I think that, you know, it's, it's, it's a tool, it's, it's a great tool to even give us confidence that we sit on so much history. Um, the one of my, I mean, I have many reasons that I think that the Mormon faith is, uh, um, is, you know, not, uh, um, it, it doesn't connect. It doesn't make sense, not just to me, but I, I, I would, I can make a case that just does not make sense. It cannot be as they say it is. And I'm not going to get into that in this podcast, but I will say this, that one of the, one of the very early on, um, kind of kind of things that I saw in the Mormons that I said, you know, I, I don't, this is not, uh, I can't wrap my mind around this. It, I mean, they, they connect what they believe back to what's happening in Scripture, back to what's happening in um, the Revelations, in the, I mean, meaning the, the prophets and Jesus, what's happening in, in the Bible. But they also are leaning on um, the idea that Joseph Smith uh, had a revelation from God and, 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 a lot of what has changed separates the Mormons from other Christian groups or Orthodox Christian groups, or even the Catholic Church, was just came about um, in the last um, century or century or so, last in the last two hundred years. And I think uh, I, I I think that that plays against the Mormons. I think that you can look and say, you know, history. Even if history helps build a case that this makes sense, because time really does prove to some degree. Um, it, it brings out uh, the the positives and the negatives. It, it just does. And I, I've mentioned this before. I think part of the reason why um, Christians maybe shy away from history is because they they have heard from people that Christ, the the history of Christianity, um, especially in the um, during the times of the Crusades and the Spanish Inquisition, and, and there's just been these very dark times where Christians were fighting each other and torturing each other, and and, and you know they just kind of fell into this, you know. But the thing is. Even in those moments, there has always been a remnant of people who have followed the faith that has been laid out um, in the New Testament, um, the kingdom that is talked about by Jesus, and the physicality of the kingdom, and the nuts and bolts of the kingdom that then is uh, is is taught by Paul in the New Testament. There's always been people and always been groups 
always been churches that have moved through that time in history. Um, so history, that's a long way to say history is very, very important. If you're joining us uh, for the first time, I want to let you know that um, we're committed to that. We're committed to filling in that gap that is missing between um, commentary on Scripture now um, and, and the Bible and kind of come between those two and say those two are both valuable, but we need some, let's, let's put some historical meat in the middle of that so we can be confident that um, we sit, as Christians, uh, we sit on the shoulders of saints from um, thousands of years, a couple thousand years. So um, today what I want to do is I want to start a new, uh, it's a two-part um, this is series, but two podcasts. And the podcast we'll do here in January um, will be the first part of this, and then the second part will be um, the fourth Sunday or the fourth week in uh, in February. And I'm calling this the Arian Controversy in the Council of Nicaea. So the Arian Co- Controversy in the Council of Nicaea. And I want to read for you, um, before we even get into what that is, what that council was, I'm, I'm going to... Um, I'm going to walk through this as though you are completely, these are completely foreign terms to you, the Arian Controversy and the Council of Nicaea. And by the way, Arian Controversy, we're not talking about Arian uh, white supremacists or anything like that. It's a different type of, it's not that, okay? It's, 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 it's not that same idea. So this Arian actually is connected to the name of an individual that would be a part of this controversy. So don't get that mixed up because that will be that'll trip you up big time. Um, so I'm going to talk to you and teach you about this, these two things, the Arian controversy and the Council of Nicaea. Um, and I'm going to teach as if you have no absolutely no idea of what these two things are. Um, but even before we get to talking about the Council of Nicaea, I want to read you one of the uh, um, statements that came out of the Council of Nicaea, which is part of the Nicaean Creed. So the Council of Nicaea is when men gather together and they put out creeds, or specifically this creed. So this is like a statement that came out of their meeting. So they met together, and this is what they agreed on. And it says, And we believe... In one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten from the Father as the only begotten, that is, from the substance of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. So the Council of Nicaea, as we get close to that and as we get into that, what we're going to see is we're going to see the church dealing with how do we describe how do we um, how do we describe so that we can proclaim and explain who Jesus is. All right, um, how do we explain that he is both God and man? And what will happen is leading up to this um, this council where where the church leaders are gathered to come up with an answer of, okay, this is how we have to communicate this, a controversy pushes this council into taking effect. So um, so what I want to do is I want to spend some time, as I said, kind of talking about um, the controversy that led into the Council of Nicaea. But I want to back up just a little bit because I want to let you know kind of um, that, uh, you know, Christianity has been involved in controversies. It's still involved in controversies, and these controversies are um, are 
they can be a detriment to people's faith. It seems as though if there's controversies, if people are able to argue back and forth about a specific thing that's happening, maybe this is not, this faith is not settled or this religion is not settled as much as it should be. But this is just kind of the way it goes in all faiths. But we need to embrace the fact that um, it, that people struggle with what has been taught and uh, and and not it was taught and what has been in the Bible and what is in the Bible, um, not just struggle meaning that it's wrong, but they struggle through how is the best way to to deal with this. I, I consider when um, Paul talks and talks about how Paul talks about this uh, in 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 the New Testament, he says that we are working out our faith. And I think part of that is, you know, taking what we see and we read and, and we go from just it being just a concept that we just swallow that concept. And that's just what we think to um, allowing ourselves to really kind of think through it. What does this really mean for me? And, and I think that God allows for controversies to take place because he knows that as long as we have a humble spirit, um, as long as we are looking to the Word and asking God to lead us into what we are thinking about and, and how we're working through things, um, God is confident that we, our faith will be strengthened as we move through controversies. Now, contra- like I said, controversies have been all the way back. They've been, you know, something that's been that has been has been there. Um, all the way back in Paul's time, um, the big issue, the big controversy, was uh, the relationship between Jewish and Gentile uh, converts. Um, it, what does that look like? What happens if a Jew wants to become a Christian? What Do they bring their Jewish heritage over into Christianity, or do they have to leave that completely behind? What do we do with Christianity within Judaism, which was obviously a huge deal because uh, um, Christianity came out of a Jewish uh, people group. They, it came out of a Jewish group of people, um, so there was Jews that were um, that were now worshiping as Christians, um, and there were Jews that were being brought into being Christians. And you know the Jews that were following the laws of the specific uh, faith of Judaism, Orthodox Juda- Judaism. What happens now is what do they still have to do those things? Do they not? Is it just you know? So they had to work through that. There's also, uh, they had to work through um, uh, dealing with the Gnostics and, and dealing with, uh, you know, what is the body important? Is the spirit important? Um, what's, what is the most important thing? Um, what, is, what is a spirit? What is a soul? Um, the Gnostics had a, a view that, you know, everything physical was, was bad and there was this spiritual. So then, you know, the, that the church at that time had to deal with passages where it's clear in the Bible that, you know, our bodies are a temple, not just our spirits, but God also has created our, the physical body to be a part of what he's doing. And in the third century, um, as you move kind of further down, um, Cyprian, who was the bis- the bishop of Carthage, he he had to deal with this idea of what do we do with the lapsed the lapsed. Now the lapsed were the individuals who were Christians, but then during the Roman persecutions they denied Christ, but then when they 
when when there was no longer persecution, they came back to the church. They said, "We want we want back in," and some people were saying, "Well, that's, that's not cool. That can't you know you gave that up." So Cyprian and and the church had to deal with what do we do with these people? Um, how do we show love? How do we show grace? And what about because some people didn't. You know, they didn't deny uh, Christ, and, and they were killed. They were fed to lions. They were sawn in two, and and in horrible, horrible deaths. So, sh- do we just let kind of this, this, uh, this, this group just like the lapse to just kind of come back into the church? And I wish I could go more into that. It's a very interesting controversy itself, but um, we don't have uh, time to do that. And you know, and, and these the, these controversies were. Um, were big deals, and, and they they were bitter. The, the uh, um, people argued back and forth. Um, it caused people to have issues within um, themselves, and and it wasn't always pretty. You know, I think a, just a microcosm idea of what was going on would be, you know, now you have if you ever heard of a church split, you know, a church split. So this happens all the time where where churches they meet together, whether there's no. 50 people in the church or 10,000 people in the church, there's some issue that comes up and they have disagreement. They, they can't work to a, um, to, to agreement and the church splits. And, you know, even though they are, they could, they're, I mean, that, that, that has, and will create, you know, animosity towards one another. Um, these things do happen and it doesn't necessarily mean that one group is not, you know, Christian anymore. Um, it just means that sometimes controversies happen, and, and I think this is bound to happen when we are putting our faith um, in in Jesus. There are things that we work through the Bible, and there's going to be things that we see um, that are um, easier than other things to work through, especially within you know within communities. But within church history, something extremely important happened. And I could talk about all kinds of facets of, of this historical event. And this event is um, Constantine coming to power, becoming the emperor of Rome. And uh, I won't be able to give the, the history of Rome completely right now, but him coming to power was um, a, a literally groundbreaking, um, earth-shattering to some degree. It was a monumental event that affected the church. And the reason for that is um, Constantine, after what he said was a vision um, during, before the battle in which he, uh, in which he was victorious and then took over um, the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire at that time was actually split in two, but he brought it uh, together and became the um, emperor, very powerful emperor, um, actually moved uh, the, uh, um, unprecedented. He, he moved the capital of the Roman Empire from Rome to what would be Constantinople, and later, after the Muslims took over, would become Istanbul. And uh, he, his, his, uh, his, the power that he had, he used that power to make Christianity, because of that vision, the religion of the empire. Now, it's not as though Constantine became an apostle or became, um, history shows us that he 
he was a Christian, but he he's a Christian in the sense that he claimed Christianity to be important, but he also continued to worship the gods um, of, of his fathers of Rome and continued to um, carry himself in a way that would be um, in, in a holiness manner that some Christians would say this is this is not okay. Um, and uh, I, I guess I'm going to say something kind of controversial right now, but, but I think this is just, it, it's, it is what it is. You know, send me emails if you need to. Um, Constantine, although, I, you know, he, 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 um, he presented himself as a Christian, um, it, it was as though he had his foot in, in kind of this, the, uh, the pagan world and also in the Christian world. Uh, but Christians were just so hungry to have a political leader that supported them that, to some degree, Christians just put an incredible amount of faith in this emperor, which made things not necessarily how they should be. And I think there's a danger any time that Christians put their faith in a political leader um, and, and, and not just they're put their faith in them, feeling as though they are um, they're Christians, they are they're pure, they're they're good men, they're you know whatever language you want to use. Because anytime a Christian puts their faith in a man um, more than he or she should, then there's always disappointment, and it can actually lead to chaos. Um, in when uh, uh, Donald Trump was running for. Um, president in 2016, um, there were Christian leaders that uh, Franklin Graham, Jerry Falwell Jr. Um, these these guys would come out and they they'd kind of trot him out and say, I, "This guy's a Christian. He's he's a man of God." He, you know, this kind of language was used, and then. Throughout the Trump presidency, I mean, we could have actually seen it before, actually, before the Trump presidency. Uh, we saw his life, and then we saw how he carried himself while he was in office. And yes, he stood for some things that Christians believed were true. Um, as a man, and and how he carried himself, especially in the areas of, of, of pride and, um, you know, we won't get into all of that, but um, how he carried himself, what we saw was that he was not a champion of the Christian faith. And what we need to just understand is that, you know, we, can, we never want to put our faith in men. And just like Trump, um, Constantine, there were so many things good about him. And I, I, again, I, I guess I would go back. I, I would not say that Trump was not, uh, didn't uh, champion Christianity. He championed many policies that Christians would, would agree with. But when it came down to it, when the cards were kind of on the table, um, you know, I, I, I would, I would think that many Christians that saw him as like a man of God um, may realize that they may have put him on a higher pedestal than they should have. And this was happening with Constantine as well. Um, many theologians argue that the church's explosive growth um, and the importance of the kind of the tying the knots of the theological knots and bringing them together and, and solidifying um, what was happening in the early church and the, the letters of Paul and putting together uh, the Bible and all these things um, are putting together some of the writings and, and just the church is just growing. A lot of that happened because there was persecution, because the state was not supporting them. Um, the, the Christianity was developing um, 
quickly because of the connectedness of the Roman Empire, but they were also growing because of the persecution of the Roman Empire. And as soon as Constantine makes Christianity um, the state religion, officially it became the state religion, um, in the United States, uh, I, up and it may be, I think it's probably changing and will change over the next, you know, 15, 20 years, but it has been, Christianity has been the unofficial religion um, of, uh, in the United States. Christianity has been the unofficial religion in the United States. And I think that uh, um, probably some of the same things we can see in the United States. In, in the Roman Empire, um, this was not necessarily good because some of the pressure cooker situations that were, would, were causing the church to grow um, were, were now gone. And there was this availability for there to be politics and the churches, what the church was doing combined, and it caused, caused some problems. And what we'll see is that um, in this controversy, and this is the controversy, the Arian controversy that we'll talk about here, it was the first controversy within the church that became um, intertwined with politics. So before, when there were controversies, there sure were controversies, um, Christian leaders would go back and forth through letters, they'd work things out, it'd be through prayer, it'd, be, it'd take time, um, and it was maybe an arduous process, but it was still a process that was um, a, more of a pure process than here, where, after Constantine comes to power, this in this controversy, what we'll see is that both sides of this controversy, instead of going back and forth, going back and forth, they then decide to appeal to the state. So appeal to Constantine to side with one or the other. And you see how that can become a problem, asking the emperor or the state to side with this position or this position um, is not the same as two Christian leaders or two Christians getting together and working it out between the two of them. And obviously there will be consequences, and there are, is con we, we will see consequences even in uh, the Council of Nicaea as when they deal with this Aryan controversy. And because of all of this, we need to see, and it, it makes sense, that the empire, um, which Constantine was leading at this time, but even after Constantine was no longer the emperor, he, honestly, even after Rome fell, and there was still um, uh, the state, politics and religion was um, intertwined um, just beyond the, the Roman Empire. It seems that these empires, they had a vested interest in the unity of the church. And Constantine uh, hoped that what he would bring was cement of the empire. That's what he called, that was a quote of his, that he saw Christianity being one as being the cement of the, un of the empire. So the unifier of the empire he saw as being a religion. Thus, as soon as this... Th this this took place where where uh, Christianity was the um, the religion that was a state religion. Um, many leaders made sure that if there was rifts that seemed to be taking place over theological issues, they wanted to either a get rid of those arguments immediately, or b they wanted to have their hands. This is the leaders, the Roman leaders or state leaders. They wanted to have their hands in the process in order to bring a quick resolve to theological issues, which can be problematic. So let's say an issue comes up that needs to be discussed. It could be that the ruler of the time, this did happen with Constantine as well, 
just squashes it and says, you know what, we're not going to do this. We're not going to talk about this. It's, it's done. It's like two kids that are fighting. Instead of hearing one side and the other side and trying to figure out what happened, you just say, we're not talking about this. Stop arguing. Close your mouths. And in those moments, things that uh, could be worked out, that needed to be worked out, were probably squashed, and those issues were pushed way down further down the road, and we could even now be dealing with some of, uh, working through some issues that could have been dealt with even in the first, second, third century after um, Christ died and rose again, ascended to heaven. And then in the moments where the state wanted to get their hands kind of into um the you know kind of think about it this way you have two kids that are fighting then as as a parent you take the kids and you just force them to work it out say you're sorry say you're sorry all right we're good when there's obviously could be more under the surface and so so the state was not impartial whatsoever i mean the state what it did was it it, it basically um looked at christianity as something that needed to remain intact and the less arguing the better because it was the cement of the empire now with all that said let's talk about what the arian controversy actually was and let's see how constantine inserted himself into this controversy and what will ultimately lead us into the Council of Nicaea, what they talked about, what the uh, um, completed statements that came out of that, the agreed upon completed statements that came out of that um, group. And uh, let's look at that. But, but right now, let's just look at the, the Aryan controversy. Now, where the Aryan controversy kind of came from, it came um, in, in a series of theological developments um, that took place, you know, long before um, the time of Constantine. But in the co- time of Constantine, is when these things kind of come to a head. Now, what what it was is just at its root, it was um, how do Christians think of the nature of God? How do they think of that? What what is the nature? Of God, and maybe it's well. This seems obvious, but if you think about it, this is a difficult question. Now, Justin Clement of Alexandria, Origen, and others have been working on this and kind of just poking into this uh, and saying, "Well, what what is um, what is the nature of God, and specifically, what does that mean then for Jesus? Who is Jesus? Okay, so there's there's God." who's God, but then there's Jesus, who's the Son of God, yet he is also God. But is he fully God? And man, is he part, part man, part God? There's this idea of Jesus where, you know, could he be like a Greek demigod where he's, he's God, but he's, he's, he's also man? Or is it all wrapped into one? Because in Scripture, we have it laid out as though Jesus is fully God. He calls himself God many, many times. Um, the prophecies about him call him God many, many times. But he also is called the Son of Man. He's, 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 he is a human being. The Bible says in the, in the New Testament, in, in the letters uh, to the church, that he experienced everything human beings experience. Um, Jesus is, he gets tired um, when he's, he gets he, he feels pain when he's beaten and sent to the cross. So, so the question amongst Christians were, how can a fully God man feel pain, be tired? It, it, but how can, if, he, if he feels pain, if he gets tired, how is he fully 
God, how does this 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 work? And um, when the first Christians they began to preach um, their message throughout the empire, first of all, they were taken as as atheists, and part of the reason for this was uh, because they were preaching and teaching about Jesus. And there were those who misunderstood what they were doing and saying they're teaching about a prophet, but they're not talking about God. Therefore, they're atheists. So how interesting is that, that they were seen as atheists in the Roman Empire? So they had to explain somehow to those who were being exposed to the church for the first time that Jesus was not just a man, but he was a God man, and they wrestled with how to, uh, um, how, how to work through that. And what they did was, uh, because like anything, they were trying to figure out the best way of, like anything that is hard to explain, they were trying to figure out the best way to communicate what this was. So um, the Christian leaders, teachers, um, they, they looked, they began to look back to uh, the authority of antiquity, and they considered some of the classical philosophers and, and kind of how they thought about um, souls and body and spirit. And what they found is the best pagan philosophers had taught that above the entire cosmos, there's a supreme being. And some of these pagan philosophers had even declared that pagan gods were human creations. So Christians began to look back and say, okay, the, maybe we can we can help people understand what's happening within our movement by looking back to pagan philosophers. And these philosophers said that above, there was created things and there was a creator, a supreme being. And they began to communicate, some of these Christians communicate that there was a supreme being, God, and God created the first of creation, Jesus, who is created by God. So he is Jesus to be worshipped, but he is also a created being. And and some uh, some some Christians saw there was value in this to them. They found that some people, it was easier for them to understand what Christians were doing. It was easier for them to understand that there was a God and then he had a son who was created and then his son, and then they walked through the gospel. It was easier for people to wrap their mind around. But at the bottom line, this is very a very dangerous way of thinking about Jesus. I mean, um, if we think about Jesus in this way, what we start doing is we undeify Jesus. And what happens is then we look at Scripture and we start hitting some extremely thick walls. So if we say that Jesus is created, Jesus was somehow, there's the Father and the Father created Jesus, then we we have to work through, well, why did Jesus call himself God? Why did he say that he had the ability to forgive sins? This just doesn't make any sense at all. 
So what ended up taking place is there were two predominant views that developed out of this trying to figure out Jesus and, and is he God, is is he man, is he God man, and what's his relationship with the Father, and, and who is the Father, and is it does he create what does he create, who is created? Um, there's two views that kind of come to the surface, and one view is just an allegorical interpretation of um, scriptural passages, uh, which basically means that anything that happens within scripture that seems unworthy of God, um, the supreme being, just either did not happen, or we can look past that, or just you know, maybe it made its way into uh, uh, Scripture, and it shouldn't be there. And what I mean by that is, this is an example, um, that God the Supreme Being, God the Father, if the Scripture says He walks in the garden, um, it, that doesn't make any sense because He's he's not physical. It doesn't have a physical being, so that has to be some kind of an allegory, all right? So God didn't literally walk in the garden. It's just the writers of the Old Testament are kind of trying to use some kind of storytelling allegory to show um, what Jesus is doing. I'm sorry, what what, what the Father is doing. Um, the second view um, was that uh, it's it's it would be it's it's called theologians call it the doctrine of the logos, which began to develop. And the doctrine of the logos um, what what it did was it it was well first of all uh, like I said before Justin Clement Origen and others really pushed this idea because they saw that there's another facet to what's happening with God so if you look through Scripture and you say God the Father is the supreme being but anytime He interacts with people on Earth um, we got to take that out because a supreme being is got going to be acting specifically on the earth, um, you start chipping away in uh, huge chunks of scripture, um, and you start having a problem. So the idea of a doctrine of a logos is is basically that uh, this view is that uh, there is a supreme being, the Father, and he's immutable, impassable, and, and, and so on, all the, the characteristics of him. But there's also a logos, and, and it's, it's Greek, and logos means word or reason of God that is capable of interacting with human beings and with the world and with creation. So there's a supreme being, there is God, but then as also a part of him is his word that comes from him, his reason that comes from him. And this part of him, the logos or the word, is able, is capable, um, is part of God's capability to speak into what is actually happening on the earth. So now we start to see, okay, it's not allegorical. That's not, maybe that's not how we should view um, there's God and everything else that he does, that he interacts with the world. That's a that that's an allegory. But instead, we embrace scripture and we say there is a father, but there's also an ex, there's also this thing that comes that is a part of him, but also comes from him, which is the word 
of God. And uh, um, this word is what builds relationships with people and maintains those relationships. Um, and and really, if, if you don't see it that way, what happens is you fall into this kind of disarray when it comes to reading about who Jesus is. I mean, John said the word was with us. He, he, he came, he was a part of us. He was with us. He was he, he was he was there he came you know he talks at the very beginning John chapter 1 about the word and the word was God and the word was with God so the word was God and it was with him and it came out so Jesus is connected he is he is the embodiment of the word of God he is the the voice that comes from God therefore because that voice comes from God he is God okay so to deny this starts to chip away at the deity of Jesus. So, if you say that there's a supreme being, but there is not a logos, and then the Bible says that the logos is the word, which is Jesus, then we start to we have to say the word does not come from God, as as God. But the word is created by God. All right, so it's, it's, it seems like kind of a, a difficult thing to wrap your mind around. But there's a huge difference between the word of God as God and the word of God being created from God. Because if you say the word of God is created from God, then you have Jesus as a lesser word, as a created something beneath. God, when it is important that we understand that Jesus is God, okay? So this is where the controversy begins, and it began in Alexandria when Licentius was still ruling in the east and uh, Constantine in the west, so this was before Constantine, you know, had that that battle took over, um, we talked about earlier, and the bishop of Alexandria, Alexander, uh, was his name, um, clashed over several issues with a man named Arius, who was one of the most prestigious and popular um, pastors in the city. So they were both in the same city. And within their uh, their geographic area of the city, um, they began to argue. And the basic, just a very clear basic argument of what um, Alexander and Arius had was this. Alexander believed and taught that the word, the Logos, Jesus, was co-eternal with the Father. Okay, Jesus was co-eternal with the Father. This means that the word, Logos, like we were talking about before, how just the... the the church was wrestling through, through these things. This, this is the, it all came down to this. This was the big uh, show. This was the main event of this controversy that leads into the Council of Nicaea. That Jesus is co-eternal with God. So as long as there was God, he was there because he was also God. And, I mean, we, we see some of this in, in Genesis, early part of Genesis, when, when God creates man. He says, let us make man in our image. And in, in, in the Hebrew, there's a plurality, okay? So there's, there's an us and me that's, that's also, that is uh, creating man. Um, and and this, there's multiple scriptures, but um, to focus on the, uh, um, 
the controversy, Alexander taught that the, the word um, logos, the word Jesus, was co-eternal with the Father, and Arius would teach that Jesus was not co-eternal with the Father. Instead, he was created as the first among all things. So Alexander says that Jesus is co-eternal. Um, Arius says he's not. Now here's the significance of this, okay? The significance is if you claim that Jesus is not co-eternal, you then are not able to classify him, Jesus, the word, the logos, as being divine to the same standard of the Father. So Jesus is no longer divine, no longer God. He is not eternal with God. He was created. So just by default, if you have a God that has, has never been created, um, has never has no beginning and will have no end, if he creates the Word or Jesus as a separate entity, then Jesus, therefore, cannot ultimately be God. All right? So, so this is huge. It's not a minor point. And Alexander, because he was the bishop, and his authority allowed him to deem teaching as, um, as heretical or um, as at the, heretical at worst, um, just uh, not helpful at best, he, claim, he claimed or he made a statement that Aris' claims that Jesus was not co-eternal with the Father. Uh, Alexander says this is, a, this is a teaching that's not only damaging, it, is, um, it, it demeans uh, Jesus as the Son of God and God, um, and it is heretical, and we're not going to, uh, we're not going to, we're not going to deal with that. It's not going to be, or we're going to deal, but that's not going to be a part of what we teach. Well, Arius, in true form, to how some people deal with this kind of uh, attack, instead of uh, working through the correct channels, um, Arius just says, "Well, you don't have the authority to tell me um, what my view of Jesus is," and he begins to appeal to the people in the city in which these two are arguing. So this is very interesting. <laughs> I, I thought this was, this was very interesting. So Arius begins to appeal to the people and, says, and saying, convincing them that you know Jesus is not co-eternal and we, we get, if we're not going to be able to explain Christianity um, if we don't separate these two because Jesus being co-eternal with, with God and being God is just completely too um, confusing. So it just doesn't work. It doesn't, doesn't work. And uh, and people began to take up the cause, and they would uh, they were marching down the streets of the city to show their displeasure in Alexander uh, having the audacity to call out Arius. Um, so you had people marching and uh, people going around, and so this be- this was this was becoming a, a powder keg okay, situation. And at this moment. Um, as this controversy becomes a bigger and bigger deal, Constantine is in power, okay? And when he, he sees this and says, okay, this, this could become, become a major, major issue. 
he saw this as an issue that could could actually split this new faith, split Christianity. Because the view of, I mean, he understood, I mean, he wasn't, um, he wasn't an idiot, you know, he understood that Christianity, Christians' view and church leaders' view of Jesus set the tone for how they viewed salvation, how they viewed living, how they viewed the gospel in general, how they viewed how the Bible was read, how they viewed how the gospel should be sent out, um, how they viewed God the Father. So this was a huge issue. So Constantine decides to get involved. And here we have the first um, the first time where we see a major issue, a major rift that has now spreading into church world further and further out from just the city where Alexander and Arius are, are ministering or are arguing rather. Um, and the state says, I need to get involved with this. And we can all look back to the long dissertation I gave at the very beginning um, when I talked about how that can be very, very messy. But Constantine decides to get involved. So what he does is he he decides to pull church leaders from all over the, the empire. And there are bishops. That you, it was kind of set up where there was bishops over specific cities. And you know, the larger the cities, the more um, influential the cities. Sometimes that's the more influential the, uh, the bishops would be as well. And he pulls them together to deal with this issue. So it's like he pushes them into a room. And I've used the example of, uh, of kids twice now in this podcast, but I think I'll use it again. It's basically like two kids fighting. You take them, you push them into a room, shut the door, and you say you're not coming out, so you work this out. And I, I think there's pros and cons to the fact that this happened. The pro is that um, it, the church was, they had to deal with this. You know, this could have been something that if it would have gone on for 100 years, maybe there would have been more damage than um, if there would have been just this shorter amount of time. But the other side of it, too, is that the state got involved with uh, the, the issues within the church, which may not have been the best thing. So Constantine decided to take a step uh, that he'd actually be, been considering for a long time, um, which is interesting because, again, the state is not just um, helping what is going on. They have their own ideas of what should be happening. So Constantine said, you know what, um, let's take, make lemon out of lemonade here, and we can deal with this issue, the Jesus co-eternal with the Father, or he is not, and kind of figure that out. But there's also a lot that needs to be figured out because we need to solidify this religion. If it's going to be the religion of the empire, then we need to solidify it in some kind of way. So he takes this step, and he, uh, he, he calls an assembly of Christian bishops, they call it a council, from all over the empire. And they deal with, he wants them to deal with, and they do deal with a bunch of issues, uh, policies, um, how, how, you know, what is the uh, government of, what is the church government going to look like? And, and basically, again, the way I see it, and you're probably getting that I have a rather negative view of um, the, uh, the church locking arms with Rome during this period of time. Um, what happens is the government, Constantine specifically, um, as head of the government, he is using this time to say, let's make the church more like an actual worldly government, and then we'll also discuss this other issue that's going on. 
All right. So the bishops come together to deal with the issue, um, the Arian controversy. But Constantine says, yeah, let's do that. But let's also make this more. Um, let's 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 put a, a policies in place. Let's put um, ch church governance specifically in place. Let's put they they're going to talk about money and those types of things. Um, so he brings in this this other piece where, again, it's a maybe a necessary evil. I mean, obviously God was in charge of what was going on, but uh, Constantine um, he brings them together, which is good. Um, he he pays their way. He gets them there. If they're not able to get there, um, sends uh, government officials to bring them if they're not able to come, uh, the church leaders. But also that comes um, with a price. And he brings them together, and they're going to meet in Nicaea. And it, and even this is a, a just a, a, an example of how Constantine wanted his hands all over that he wanted to control the church as well. Nicaea was not um, not far from Constantinople, and that was not an accident. It was very close, stones throw from Constantinople. Um, and historians can look at this and say, this gave the bishops they, the idea that they had autonomy as they were meeting, but the, the emperor was close enough that he could physically step into the meetings if he wish to do that. So then what happens is in the year of 325, um, 325 AD, um, this council is going to meet. And we'll talk more about the actual council um, uh, in the next podcast in, in February. Um, so we talked a lot, kind of felt like it went around a lot and kind of hit on a, a lot of different things. But if we bring it together, here's the deal. The deal is the, this major controversy dealt with um, the eternality, the lordship, whether Jesus was divine or whether he was created. That's what it came down to. Was Jesus created or was he God, but then God incarnate when he was on the earth? Okay. And what was at stake in this controversy was, is Jesus divine or is he God-like because he's created, but he's not divine? And, you know, there's all kinds of theological implications for this. And what we see is across the board, the Council of Nicaea, spoiler alert, they're going to come down on um, the side of saying, Jesus was of the same substance of God the Father. So they are of one substance, um, as I mentioned in the quote uh, earlier. But there was drama for sure getting there. And uh, um, we're going to talk about that next time. And uh, next time will be very interesting to see how, because um, what's going to happen is it's going the the controversy is going go to go from these two leaders to a bunch of leaders. So um, just seeing their opinions and how they come to this conclusion, it's actually what I would say one of the most it's it's a supernatural thing when you get a bunch of leaders together and they walk out of the room um, at least coming to some kind of conclusion of this is what is truth. And um, you'll see that the leaders do, um, they, they, they search into scripture to find 
what the truth is. And and I think there, there's a there's a lesson in that. There's a lesson in just understanding that two people can read the Bible intensely and with humility and um, really seeking to see what's what is in the passages that they're reading in the Bible. And they could walk away with two different ideas of what the passage says, even ideas that come in conflict with each other. And that doesn't mean, I mean, it doesn't, it's just how it's going to be. So what happens in those situations? Well, what needs to happen is um, we need to work with each other, looking into scripture and work through our through these things and work on our faith, knowing um, that just the Bible can be difficult at times. Um, I had someone, you know, recently, but I've had people say before, I don't understand why there's so many different denominations. If Christianity's yeah, especially Protestants, why can't, you know, why are Protestants, why do they have churches everywhere, all different kind of churches, be multiple Baptist churches on the same street? Why, I don't know, that doesn't make any sense. I think what it speaks to when we see that kind of stuff is that the Bible as a special revelation of God is an incredible, incredible, incredible book. And there's a simplicity, there's a simplicity to it in that the gospel is not over everybody's heads. We understand, just like Paul says, I will preach Christ and Christ crucified. I mean, there's the gospel. He, he, he came to earth. He lived the life. He lived a life. Uh, he's God incarnate. He lived the life that we should have lived and died the death. We should have died and he rose again, which no one has ever done that in all of history. And there's there's much, much historical documentation that would lead you to believe that that possibly did happen. I believe it happened, but you can tell, I can explain things to people and say, I, these, you know, this, this doesn't make sense if he didn't raise from the dead. I, I, I think that there's, it's not just on faith. God leaves us bread, breadcrumbs to be able to uh, find, uh, find our positions that he rose from the dead. Um, but it's, but the Bible in its simplicity also has a depth to it that can be um, overwhelming. And it, it can take time for us to really understand what's going on. And I believe that it comes through study and it comes through um, relationships with other people is how we understand where the Bible, um, what it is actually saying at, in some parts. And it would be silly for us to think that, you know, we read the Bible and just you know, kind of nailed it right there. We got it. Um, but the church does have some things that it's 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 going to have to work out. There are social things that are happening, um, all regardless of where you're listening to. I know we have people listen to this podcast from different countries, but in the U.S., uh, we have to figure out. You know, what does the Bible say about um, sexuality, um, gender issues, immigration? Uh, the state and the state's involvement in 501c3s, what does the church look like? Um, what does the church look like after a pandemic? Um, what does gathering look like? What does that mean? Um, you know, the church is always dealing with what is what what is language, what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. There, there's all kinds of things that are, are that the church is going to need to go to scripture and, and figure out what does it say. And there may be some of those things that you may say, well, that's just obvious, you know, that's just an obvious thing. Uh, and and, uh, and maybe you think it's obvious, but maybe someone else is diligently reading their Bible and coming out with a different conclusion as you. 
Well, the worst thing that can happen is if you and that person build up walls and just um, like Arius began to do with Alexander, where I'm not even listening to you. I'm going to talk to the people. I'm going to tell them you're wrong and I'm right. Um, instead, this is where I think we can give Constantine props to some degree. Um, he did put people together and say, you know, you guys got to figure this out on your own. Well, well, we have to do that as well when we're approached by someone who disagrees with what we say and it just makes us feel uncomfortable. Um, our, our state of mind should not be um, one of uh, um, just battle, let's battle, um, but instead let's kind of work through this. And I think struggling through scripture, whether it be the church as a whole or as individuals, it's not bad, okay? I, I love this quote from Credit Scott King. She says, a struggle is a never-ending process. Freedom is never really won. You earn it and win it in every generation. And I am not uh, saying that, you know, our faith, that Christianity needs drastically changes what it is about. Um you know, every generation gets to kind of redefine what Christianity is. But I will say this, we have within Christianity, we have the gospel and we have some things, some tenets that we hold on to. Um, and there's some creeds and things that we're going to be talking about here next, uh, next time we meet. Um, but there is some other stuff that may seem like, like, like may seem that the teaching on this stuff is critical to the gospel when it when it isn't okay and i think that's where a lot of people get kind of held up on social issues okay so it's we think that this issue here is primary to the gospel and to the meta narrative of scripture but ultimately it is not and those things that are not um, primary to the meta narrative of scripture and to the gospel those are the things that we can come together on and we can work through, we can wrestle through, and we can um, um, come to maybe a conclusion that's more appropriate and more um, um, it, it, more of a, a, a clear um, understanding of the text than what our parents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, all the generations, you know, for the last 2,000 years. So then it is our responsibility to understand that there is a struggle to understand scripture and there's nothing wrong with that and we must engage all right so to be a christian to call yourself a christian you must engage even if the scripture is difficult in concepts that are difficult if you aren't a christians a christian i encourage you to do the same thing because it is confusing it is confusing what alexander and arius were talking about i mean is jesus the word co-eternal or is he created not co-eternal this is laying the foundation of the christian understanding of the trinity the father son the holy spirit it's just the foundation of that we're 300 years into the church and the church is wrestling through how do we describe who Jesus is? We believe he's God, but it doesn't make sense. We're struggling through it. And if it takes the church leaders, some of the doctors of the church, church leaders that were early on 
you would say maybe more connected to the original sources, if it took them 300 years to figure out how, what do we even call Jesus? What, how do we even, how do we even, what do we even, this is confusing. If that's true, then come on. I mean, it makes total sense that you and I would struggle through things that we read in Scripture um, because we probably would not say that we are at the place where um, some of these church leaders were with their passion and coming out of um, leading people through persecution and everything else. So it's been good to spend time with you. I did want to... um, I did want to suggest a book for you if you are interested in this uh, subject of um, of the Aaron debate and also or the Aaron controversy and the Council of Nicaea. Um, uh, Justo L. Gonzalez, Justo, uh, which is spelled uh, J-U-S-T-O-L, Gonzalez, G-O-N-Z-A-L-E-S. Um, he wrote a two-volume uh set, um, which is called the story of Christianity. Um, I am uh, teaching this portion of the podcast using a lot of what he did in volume one, which is where this, uh, this time that I'm talking about comes from. Um, there's also other history books that are, I'm using as well, but, um, I might put this in the show notes. Um, this is a great, great, great book. So it's used to, uh, Gonzalez, the story of Christianity, uh, volumes one and two. Um, the first one that I'm using is called the early church to the dawn of the reformation. And then volume two takes literally from the reformation up to, Probably, I think it ends probably 25 years ago. So we're talking another 500 years after that. Um, so great resource. And um, as always, you can email me um, at church.ahistory at gmail.com, church.ahistory at gmail.com. Myself or somebody else will um, answer. I have some friends that kind of help answer some of the questions that come in because uh, enough of them do come in. Um, and I really appreciate that and, and keep doing that. Um and uh, I, I hope to, uh, I hope to, hope you listen. I hope you're excited for um, the next time we get together in February. Um, and just want you to know that I, I've just started praying for people listening because there's so many people. Um, it was, uh, it was, uh, you know, when I did the Christmas podcast, it was awesome because the podcast dropped, and um, within three days, there was like 500 some people had listened to it. Um, almost 600, and then it kind of went on from there. And I just thought, you know what, God, these people who are um, who are listening to this stuff and listening to me just kind of ramble my thoughts through church history and stuff, if they're willing to listen, you know, maybe these are people that you specifically are having me pray for. So I've been praying for you. I don't know you by name, um, but I will continue to do that. So I'll see you next month. Thank you so much for listening to the Church History Podcast. Mm-hmm.